You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Let's get into our study. We have just started, or three weeks in now, a new series called The Life of Messiah, which is like a a journey through all of the Gospels simultaneously in chronological order. That's the idea of what we're doing here. And if you've been with us for the last two weeks, you know that we've been doing some of the groundwork. I do want this to be like a comprehensive course. So we've started our historical survey in what we call the 400 silent years. These are the years in between the book of Malachi and the arrival of John the Baptist on the scene. They are called the silent years, if you remember, because there was no prophet of God speaking. However, they're not silent in the sense that nothing was going on. As we've seen, there was huge amounts of things going on in these 400 silent years to prepare the world for the arrival of the Messiah at this time. Now, some of you will be glad that historical section is over. And for those of you who enjoyed the history, don't worry, we are studying a first century document. There will be lots more history as we go through the Gospels. But uh, we will actually get into a little bit of text into one of the Gospels, but it is still very much introductory stuff, so it should be uh, a little easier. So we're just going to do a few verses this morning. Um, Now, hopefully you've already understood uh, what we mean when we we talk about all this stuff that went on in the silent years. I'll very quickly recap for you of some of the significant things that happened during those periods that we see at the time of the gospel. The main one, really, that we said about the first era, the Persian rule of Israel, was the arrival of the synagogue. You may notice that you read about Jesus, he's always in a synagogue, and the apostles are always in synagogues. Synagogues were not in the Old Testament, they're not commanded by the Lord. They arose when the Jews were dispersed and scattered across the empire. I showed you a couple of the common ones, that's the one in Capernaum. Uh, In Israel there, we talked about a first century synagogue uh, in Magdala, in Israel also too, uh, some of these places there. So that was the synagogue. And then we looked at the rise of Alexander the Great, his great empire that spread across the world, that made Greek the universal language of the empire at that time. We looked at the way his empire was then divided between his four generals. We focused specifically on the two generals that controlled the north and the south of Israel. And you can see Israel there stuck in the middle, often the battleground for these two warring empires at this time, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. We also talked about during the time that the Ptolemies, the the red in the south there, the Egyptian rulers, were in charge of Israel. They were the ones that commanded that the scriptures be translated into Greek. So you had this very famous Bible translation called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, one of the most important translations ever. And often if you read the New Testament, like I said, you will read the Septuagint. The apostles quote it all the time. It was the Bible of the early church in many ways. So that's another very important thing that we saw arrive on the scene during these 400 silent years. And then we followed the story of how the Seleucids then took control over Israel we led, ended up with a ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman, as he was called, this extremely cruel Greek ruler who started trying to outlaw the Jewish religion. He banned circumcision, he banned reading from the Torah, he banned all of the ways of Jewish life, and they were given the choice to either accept the Hellenization and become Greeks, and that was how it went. And remember, we talked about it was at this stage that he deposed the hereditary Jewish high priest And he put his own man as the top of that high priest, basically the one who would pay him the most. And this is something that the priesthood suffered from all the way up until the time of Jesus. You'll see the priesthood was really a government tool bought and sold 
for the highest bidder, whoever would toe the line of whichever ruler was in charge. And we made a little bit of application to the dangers of when a church seeks its power from the state and how that often leads to compromise. This is not something new. This has been going back all the way here to before the time of Christ in many ways with religious establishments. But there's a lot of lessons. I won't go over them again today. But he was a terrible persecutor and he ended up eventually becoming so fed up with the Jews that he committed what they call the abomination of desolations, stormed the Jewish temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar, defiling the whole sanctuary. That's a very famous event in history and in the Bible. And this led, these events with a few other things, led to what we eventually called the Maccabean Revolt where the Jews finally had had enough and they started a rebellion. And after a number of years, uh, the rebellion was successful, guerrilla warfare in the hills of Israel fighting the, the Syrian army. And eventually they did overthrow the Greeks and they won their independence for a small period of time. And this was what we called the Maccabean era, the Hasmonean dynasty, which started off very well. And however, man, power, positions ended up becoming corrupt again, and these rulers ended up not being hugely better than anything that had gone before. And we went down to the last and final two Maccabean descendants who were fighting at this point for the throne, and this introduced to us a man named Antipas, who came along to one of them and said, I can help you, I'm powerful with the new, I know the new ruler, the empire, the Roman empire that was kind of rising in power significantly now in this area, and he said, I have connections with them. If you side with me, I'll make sure that you're put in throne. And it went on like that, political manoeuvring, making deals, double crossing and stuff like that. Eventually, uh, the Roman general Pompey, he got so fed up with this that he came and he stormed Jerusalem. He killed slaughter and he took Israel for himself. That was in 63 BC. And this is why the Romans were in charge of Jerusalem when we move into the time of the Gospels. And he then said to this man, Antipas, you were in charge of Judea. Antipas had a son. His name was Herod, King Herod, Herod the Great. And that's how the connection there, and that brings us up to the time of the Gospels when Herod the Great was in power. And we know him because of his famous slaughtering of the children in Bethlehem, and we'll study him more as we get through to that period. So that is all that happened in the silent years. As you can tell, anything but silent, very significant for preparing the grounds. But now I want to change uh, pace a little bit. We're going to move to our introduction of the Gospels. We do need to understand a little bit about how the Gospels are structured and why. And this is, again, going to help us in our reading of the Gospels. Remember, one of my main purposes for doing this study was ultimately... I just want you to understand the world, the life, and the teaching of Jesus in a much greater depth than we often get just from our reading. And that will help you in all sorts of ways, devotionally, and whatever you may be doing to serve the Lord. That's one of the ideas there. So let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. We'll read the introduction, Luke chapters, verses 1 to 4. So this is, it's like a preface, really, to the Gospels. And Luke is the only one who does this. That is why we're starting with this little section in Luke here. And I know this is very much introductory. Before we jump into some of the meat of the Gospels over the following weeks, we'll really get into it. But this is still the introduction. And this is important because Luke includes it in the beginning of his Gospel. So it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigate, investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, 
so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, before we get into just expositing those few verses there, let's just talk a little bit more about some of these uh, issues that we have with gospel studies. Now, the the recording of history, whether you're a believer or not a believer, the the way that history is recorded, it's been said that it it is basically a process of selection and arrangement. Okay, selection and arrangement, because no one can record everything. There's just too much. So historians will generally try and select from the available data and witnesses that they have, and they will then arrange it into either a book or a theme. And the process of selection and arrangement very much depends on what the author's purpose is, what he's trying to do by his selection. And you must think like that when you come to the Gospels, because we need to remove ourselves from the idea, which is a very, very modern idea, that in order for something to be a reliable accounting of history, it has to be absolutely fully comprehensive in exact chronological order, almost like a script for a movie is what people seem to want these days. If you've ever engaged in any sort of apologetics or gospel criticism, people like Bart Ehrman, you'll see one of their big complaints is, well, the gospels are contradictory. They have things in different places. They make different parts of different stories are left out. And because of that, they conclude that it's an unreliable witness. And unfortunately, the problem is what they have done is they've taken this 21st century idea of what they assume should be a reliable recording of history, and they've then applied that to first century Jewish historians. And that just, just doesn't work, I'm afraid. So we're gonna, I want you to try and understand this a little bit as, as we go here. So let's read John, chapter, uh, John 21, verse 25, just as why I try and explain this a bit more to you. The author says this, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written in detail... I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written about it. Okay, understand what he's saying there. There was so much that Jesus did that no one could even contain, no one could record it all. And so bear in mind, the gospel authors were not trying to record it all. John here clearly says, we, we can't do that. So you have to think rather selection and arrangement. The gospel authors will put in their gospels what they want to show according to the purpose of each specific gospel. We have four gospels that tells us that there are four specific themes to these gospels. Although they are telling the same broad story, they will each have a different focus and purpose. Imagine it like this. If you had in a circle there everything that Jesus or Yeshua there ever said or did, just like John, we read in John there, everything that he ever said and did. So you have this picture here of everything that he ever did. Now, the way that the authors of the Gospels will select their material is that they will then choose which event fits their theme. So you can see there that it will take different themes from each different thing. And that is how the Gospel authors write their Gospels, basically. Some stuff they will leave out if it doesn't fit their theme, whereas the other author might want that piece of information, that event, that teaching episode, and they will put that in. Also, you might find the same event but it will be told in a different way because they're both focusing on different elements of that story. And that's a perfectly valid way to record history. If you sent two people off today to watch a movie, two people from different backgrounds with different understandings of things, and then you ask them to write a review, the chances are they would write very different reviews and they'd have different things they focused on, different parts that they enjoyed, different parts that stood out to them. And that's a little bit, not quite, it's a loose analogy there, but that's what we have going on here. Now, also, we must understand when the gospel writers, the individual writers, they were under the inspiration of the Spirit. We'll talk about that a bit more as we go. 
and therefore they are being superintended or guided as what they would leave in. However, it is, each theme is different. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they are all very different on the things that they are focusing on. And we'll go through a little bit now and I'll just try and highlight to you what is the focus of each of these Gospels. This is why we find unique material. This is why we find similar material. The Gospel of Matthew. And when you understand them like this, you'll see that the Gospels are all complementary. They don't contradict each other, although if you read them and try and analyse them in the wrong way, it may look like that. But actually, when you understand how history was written in the ancient world, you'll understand that they are complementary. So the Gospel of Matthew, this is very much presenting Jesus, Yeshua, as the King of the Jews. The King of the Jews. That is the main focus of the Gospel of Matthew. And you have to understand in the chronology of the early church, this would have been a very early need that arose. In the very early days, when the church had just started, just after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and these things, remember, all of the believers were Jewish and they all were in Jerusalem at this time. Uh, so if they needed to really check something, they could have asked an apostle who was right there amongst them. There was a very small, confined group of people in Jerusalem at that time but then as we read in Acts chapter 7 remember the persecution started and it says that they spread all across the world and therefore there was a need that would have arisen for a source an authoritative source where they could tell this story as they preached Messiah as the king of the Jews at this time so one of the purposes was to demonstrate that Jesus was the promised messianic Davidic king as you see and when you present Jesus as the Messiah to a Jewish person and as the son of David and as the king of the world, it creates in their mind, actually it did in the first ancient Near East, and it still does today if you're speaking to Jewish people, it creates a number of questions in their mind that we might have if you're Gentile or if you're not Jewish, obviously you might not raise the same questions. You can go out into the streets of Hastings, preach Jesus as a saviour, talk about sin and all these different things, and that's fine. And generally in the Western world, we get questions like, more sort of sceptical questions that arise from maybe a naturalistic or an atheist background and they're you know how do you know that's reliable what about all the other gods have you investigated all the religions they're kind of the questions that we would get if you're preaching Jesus as the Messiah maybe to a Jewish mind their questions would be very different they would ask things like if he is the promised son of David where is the promised kingdom that it was said he was going to bring where is the world peace that was supposed to come when the Messiah comes and brings his kingdom to this earth why is the king not ruling in Jerusalem at this time? These are the questions that the Jewish mind had. These are the questions that the Pharisees and people like that had in the first century. We'll see that a lot as we go through. So a big part of Matthew's gospel is explaining why Jesus is the messianic king, but the kingdom hasn't come yet. But he still is the messianic king. That's, the, that's really the theological undergirding of the book of Matthew there. And we'll see that as we go through. You can tell this is their focus because Matthew speaks a lot about Jewish customs with no explanation. He assumes knowledge of them. He gives the genealogy coming through the line of David. He speaks about the interpretation of the law. He talks about things like the oral law, the rabbinic traditions. That all of these things are a focus and an interest in the debates that would have been keen to the Jewish mind at this time. He has a heavy use of messianic prophecy from the Old Testament in proving the identity of Messiah. And all these things are all through the book of Matthew. So that's the theme for the book of Matthew. So then we have the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. This is Jesus as the servant of Jehovah, the servant 
of Jehovah. Mark's gospel is commonly thought to be more focused on the Roman audience of this time. Obviously, there's still Jewish people writing in, in the Jewish context, but they do theme the gospels for slightly different purposes. Mark's gospel is more focused on the Roman audience. The Roman world at that time, powerful, they were impressed by action. They liked doing things. They weren't really too concerned, like the philosophers of the day, of sitting and listening to lots of teaching and sermons and long oratory devices like that. Their focus was on getting things done. And this is why the Gospel of Matthew, if you've ever read it, it's extremely fast-moving. It's the shortest Gospel. It moves from immediately action, action to event to event very, very quickly like that. It appeals to their mindset. However, Gospel of Mark is, a, is still a Jewish Gospel. It has that under, undergirding frame of reference. One of the things that Mark does is try and show that the Messiah is the perfect servant of the Lord. And it takes that phrase from the book of Isaiah, the servant of Jehovah. And it says, it pictures him like this because he is someone who was sent by God with a mission that he had to complete, and he completed it extremely well. That is basically what the Gospel of Mark is doing there. Mark portrays Jesus as that ideal servant who fulfills all of the tasks that he was tasked to do. That sort of thing would have appealed to the mindset at this time. And this is just very brief introductions. We'll obviously touch on all these when the text needs it as we go through. The Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, and now the Gospel of Luke. This is presenting Jesus as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. The, Luke, the, the Luke's Gospel has a big emphasis on the humanity of Messiah. Matthew wrote to the Jews, Mark to the Romans. Luke wrote to the Greeks, primarily. The Greek mindset there that we had. The Greek mind thought a lot about what the ideal man was, the ideal man. And they said that this would be someone who excelled in both physical agility and also in intellectual pursuits, someone who was self-disciplined and had control over his mind, his body, and his emotions. This is why they revered the philosophers and they revered the athletes. We still have it. Greek philosophy in the Olympic Games are still things that come through our mindset to ancient Greece. We all have a little bit of that in our culture still today. Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus Christ more than any other gospel. He tells us more about the infancy, the youth, uh, the birth and the narrative there of Jesus Christ. He tells us more the hum human parts like Jesus was tired, he was hungry, he slept, he needed to do all of these things. He's focusing on that. Greek mind also valued history. They were very, very keen on history. In fact, huge amounts of what we know from the ancient world come from the Greek uh, records, the Greek historians, and sometimes it's only from the Greek historians. Huge amounts of what we know from Egypt comes from the Greek historians, and that's that. And this is why I believe you, you have this introduction that we've just read in the Gospel of Luke that we'll come back to very shortly. He was the only one who had an introduction like that in his Gospel. Luke was not an eyewitness himself to the ministry of Jesus. He was a second-generation believer, but we know he was a travelling companion to Paul the Apostle, so he would have had access to all of the apostles and the eyewitnesses at that time. And there are a number of things that Luke focuses on. He focuses on Jerusalem, tells us things about the destiny of Jerusalem that no other gospel does. He speaks a lot about Gentiles. There's much in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus's interaction with different Gentiles and things like that are very unique. And Luke is also the Gospel that presents to us the most about women at this time. There was a special concern and focus for the ministry of women and the way that Jesus interacted with them. And these are three things that we'll look at as we go through. So that's Luke. And then the Gospel of John presents Jesus as the Son of God. So Son of Man and then the Son of God. 
This book is unique in many ways, the Gospel of John. If you're into Gospel studies, those first three Gospels are often called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, because they're very similar. They share a lot of the same themes and narrative. The Gospel of John is very different. It's almost like a unique Gospel all on itself. It presents some very different themes. And John actually gives a clear purpose to his Gospel right at the end of his book in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he gives us a clear purpose here. Why is John writing his gospel? It's a very evangelistic purpose. He is writing his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who fulfills all of those prophecies going back thousands of years that Jesus has, that the Lord has given to the Jewish prophets at this time. Jesus is the one who fulfills them. He is the Messiah. And he's not just telling you he's the Messiah. He's telling you with that purpose there, so that you may have life in his name. So he's also telling you that without the Messiah, you have no hope of having life, eternal life. He is the saviour of the world. That is one of the purposes of John's gospel. It's very evangelistic in its purpose. A concern then because of that is for what we call the divinity of the Messiah. Yes, the humanity of the Messiah on the one hand, that's the mystery of the incarnation, fully God, fully man. The divinity of the Messiah is John's concern. We'll look at that as we go through the gospel, the first chapter of John in the next few weeks as his prologue to his gospel. This was the last gospel to be written and the other gospels would have already had wide circulation at this time. However, there was a need for this particular gospel still to arrive. Much of the material in John is very unique. It's crafted around these seven statements, often these seven I am statements, these seven sign miracles. It's just a very unique book and we'll look at that as we go through. Around the gospel of John you have these sub-themes of darkness and light I am the light of the world and all these sorts of passages here. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Darkness and light is a massive theme. We'll go through and unpack that. That's quite exciting, that. So these are the broad themes running through the Gospels. So if you can imagine, and why have I gone through this? Because it might seem a little introductory. The idea is I want you to understand how the Gospels were written. If you can understand these different themes, as you read the Gospels, you'll understand why this author only recorded this part of the story even though this other gospel seems to have a different understanding of the story. It's not a contradiction, it's a complementary account trying to express two different themes. And that's a very valid way of recording history. It's a good way, actually. It gives you a fuller account of recording history. If all of the gospels said exactly the same thing in exactly the same way, you'd probably look at them and say, well, they've kind of got together and colluded and this is not actually a good account. It just does, eyewitness accounts don't come out like that. That's just not how it is. So this actually shows us this is real eyewitness testimony. And with that, let's get into these four verses that we read. We'll just unpack these for our study. So he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Now, these whole four verses, actually, that we read, they are, in the Greek, they are all one sentence one massive long sentence in the Greek. In fact, they are the most complex and scholarly Greek in the entire New Testament here. Very highbrow classical Greek, fitting very similar to the, the famous Greek historians like Herodotus and Thucydides. And the idea behind that is because Luke is wanting to show and place his work amongst the greatest of historians at the time. 
that, that's his idea here. That's why he writes this little preface. He's writing in the manner of an ancient historian, and he uses this very formal and classical introduction that you find in many ancient works of this sort of kind. He says, inasmuch, that basically means since it is well known, many have undertaken to compile an account. And this is interesting because it's very typical of scholarly work in the ancient world. He's showing that his work has precedent. Why is he writing what he's doing? He's showing that there's a precedent for his work. Many have already tried to compile an account. Now, this is interesting because we're, we're thinking here, well, this is one of the early Gospels. What's he talking about? Well, primarily, he's probably talking about the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. They'd already been written at this point. So they are the two chief ones that are going. But the word doesn't restrict it to that. It's a technical term, again, used by ancient historians quite frequently. For It can be used for all different types of recounting history. That would include independent sources, that would include interviews, that would include oral tradition, that would include written records. All of these things can be included. And the idea that's being passed on to us here is that Luke is competent and has he investigated every source that he can get his hands on for this time. Many have undertaken, and he says, to compile. And compile, the word there, means to set in order. And the, the word account there means an orderly description of facts and events. So this is the introduction to the gospel here. And then he says, well, what things is he referring to? He says, of the things accomplished among us. And what things are these? This is obviously the life and teaching of Jesus the Messiah. So his purpose, his, his sources for this were given to us in the very introduction to his gospel. That's what he's trying to make us understand here. They were accomplished by the people among the people. So he is saying that basically all these people that I've spoken to, all these sources, they were the ones that were there when it was happening. They saw it happening. It's, it happened amongst us, not over there in another part of the world, right here. And he's been researching it since it happened. And the idea is, let's read verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he's basically providing the sources now to his information with a view to establishing the reliability of his entire work that we're going to read. Now, this raises uh, another issue that I want to just talk about briefly because I'm talking a lot about ancient historians and you might be thinking, well, surely the Bible is different to just the works of ancient history in Greece. Absolutely, it is different. We have this doctrine in the Christian church that we call the inspiration of the Bible. And let me read to you from 2 Timothy 3, which is where this comes from. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture, so that's all of the Bible, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man, may be, man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. This is the inspiration of the Bible, which I affirm fully of a very high view of scripture, as we call it in that regard. However, we must not have a simplistic view of inspiration, because this causes problems. When you read many skeptics like Bart Ehrman, you'll, you'll quickly read his work, and you'll, he was brought up in the evangelical church, but just by the way, this guy Bart Ehrman. And one of the things he said, he was taught a very simplistic view of inspiration that almost taught that the gospel authors were kind of in a trance and the Holy Spirit was just dictating to him and they wrote exactly what it wanted to write, and that's how it functioned. That is not what we find in the Bible. And he started studying the Gospels and he came across those problems like I was mentioning, like, well, this is different. These two accounts seem different. And he said, well, they can't have been inspired like that. The Bible's not inspired, therefore the Bible's not true. And then his faith, and he ended up becoming one of the greatest skeptics of the 21st century, all based on these sorts of misunderstandings here. That's why I've taken the time to go through 
selection and arrangement, different themes, different focus, different sources, so you can understand how that is. But now inspiration, yes, inspiration is what we would call the divine superintendence. It does mean that God is ultimately in control of this, but we also know it's a dual process. He selected the right people who had the right skills, the right characteristics, the right research, and all these different things. So he allowed them to use their personality, to use their level of education, their writing skills, to create the Gospels, so that the final project, prod, product was exactly as God intended it to be without error. That's basically the process. We could spend a lot of time on that, but that's basically what we're saying here. He allowed the author to use his own personal skill and personality in the process, but God was the one inspiring it, as we say, behind the scenes there. And we could spend time, there's a lot of ways you can prove that. Biblical prophecy is one of the main ones. Uh, we've done that hopefully a few times here already. But in this case, for Luke's gospel, it was Luke's, Luke was a, a physician. It says the beloved physician, Paul calls him. He was a very careful man. Uh, he's considered to be a first-rate historian. Even after thousands of years, people have gone over his works and found many, many things that would put him in the highest ranks of the ancient historians. His skill was needed for this unique gospel. That's what happened there. And his primary purpose was to uh, reveal Jesus in that specific way that he did. And his primary source material was the accounts that had been handed down from those at the beginning, those who had eyewitness accounts of Jesus. So this would have been all of the apostles, uh, the early disciples of Jesus, and very much uh, his mother would have been a huge one. There are things in Luke's gospel that come, they speak about things that Mary, only Mary would have known because it speaks about things that are in Mary's heart. So he must have had a good relationship with Jesus' mother where she would have shared those things to him and recorded them. That's a little bit, see what we have going on here. There's been many good studies done on the gospels to show you that they bear the hallmarks of eyewitness testimony, huge amounts of them. The most recent one, by the, the head of Tyndale House, Peter Williams. So a small book, but the reliability of the Gospels is very well done, worth reading. Things like using the correct geographical information, knowledge of local customs that they couldn't have known at the time and things like that, knowledge of Judaism, knowledge of the temple, and there's just a whole list of these things that show you they read like their eyewitness testimony and they claim to be eyewitness testimony. And Luke puts in the beginning of his Gospel, my sources were eyewitness testimony. The Gospels were eyewitness testimony, which is why they are a very good recounting of history, which is also why it's, it's extreme scepticism. You've probably had this question when you're trying to tell someone about Jesus and you get the reply, yeah, but that's just in the Bible. So because it's in the Bible, we've completely thrown it all out as reliable history. That's just a common response. That response shows you that, that there's no understanding there of actually how ancient history has been recorded. The Gospels are very, very reliable history. And there's another line of study we could do down, but we won't. But that's interesting. And this is where we have, this is what we have here. So let's look at verse 3. Actually, let me focus on that final statement there in verse 2. It says, eyewitnesses, but also servants of the word. And I love that. That's a wonderful description there of the apostles, basically, and these eyewitnesses. They were servants of the word. And you could say this is a description of all believers here, if you're a believer. We are servants of the word. And servants means we are under, subordinate to the word, basically. We are there to serve the purposes of the word. Uh, we are servants of the word. We are responsible to the word. We are there to carry out what we should, the function that the word requires us to do. And this, in this sense, it was referring to preaching and spreading the message of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, it still refers to that. We are responsible and subordinate to the word. We are the servants of the word. And obviously, 
the word being ultimately the living word that we will study very shortly soon. We are servants of the Lord. That is what it means to be a believer. So verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke doesn't criticise these other accounts that have gone before him, but he still obviously feels there is a unique reason for his gospel. His unique approach is still needed at this time, and he wants to write it all down. He says he has investigated everything carefully. That means he conducted in-depth research with all the sources available that he had. His research was so comprehensive that he wanted to write a gospel over it, a book. The word everything there is pretty strong in the Greek. It's a very comprehensive word. He had literally researched everything that was available to him at that time. It was, this is why Luke is the longest and most comprehensive gospel. And when you combine it with the book of Acts, who Luke, which Luke author also wrote to the same person, Theophilus, that's most of the New Testament. So it's no surprise that most of the New Testament was written by this one person who was so particular about being accurate and checking his sources that we have a, one of these, this, such a reliable witness of history. It says, he, it says there, to write it out for you in consecutive order. Now, a lot of your Bibles might not read like that, but the, the NASB that I'm reading here is one of the most literal, and consecutive order is a very good translation of what we have here. It means broadly that Luke is concerned with chronological order, okay? Whereas the other Gospels are much more thematic, Luke is concerned with chronological order to a degree, more than the other Gospel writers were. And that is why, for our study, as we go through the life of Messiah, generally we are going to be following the chronology of Luke, kind of, because he's the only Gospel author that says he's actually writing this out in consecutive order. So why would we not? That's what he claims to do, and that is what we're going to follow there. But his concern was for this orderly account of Jesus' life. He says, most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know anything about Theophilus. We could, there's a huge amount of speculation about who he is and what, and what he was doing there. But I don't like to talk on speculation, so I'll just share with you briefly what we do, what we can get from the text. He uses the title Most Excellent. Uh, and if you read the New Testament, you'll notice that's a title that's often used for high-ranking Roman officials. Like the most excellent Felix is another one you find in the book of Acts. It seems to be a dignitary, a title that is showing us this man was of quite high status and position. But it also says in the next verse that he'd been taught quite a lot about the gospel. So most people assume, and it's a fairly good assumption, that he was a new believer. He was one of these people that had been saved at this time, and he probably had some questions and some things that he wanted answers. Most people assume that he was probably the patron or the benefactor of Luke's work. Being a man of means, he had probably the money to support some of these things going on. And often through the Bible, you'll see that there's uh, either business women or people who are running different things or officials who play a really interesting part in supporting the early ministry of the church by providing finances, offering their house to people and doing all these things. Very important. Theophilus was most likely someone like that. But we know he had a little bit of knowledge about the Christian story. So most people assume he was a new believer. And then he says in verse 4, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. This is a wonderful little phrase. It's the end of his introduction here. So again, this is another purpose that we have here for why his gospel was written. He wanted people to know the exact truth. And the phrase there, I like the phrase that it says there, the exact truth. That's what my Bible says again. That's a very literal translation of the Greek there. You may know the exact 
truth. These words are all of these things. If you look them up in a dictionary, it says, so you know for certain. It could translate there. So you have full confidence in, so that you are thoroughly acquainted with the facts, so that you are fully convinced that these things are true, and you have full assurance in the work that I'm writing to you. All of these things were in Luke's mind as he was writing his gospel. So it makes sense that if this is his purpose, this is why he went to such great effort to track down every single source and research everything that he could there. This is why we have such a reliable gospel. It's a very good apologetic purpose, a very good evangelistic purpose, and it's also a very good exhortation for new believers. These are all of Luke's concerns with his gospel there. Yet, obviously, we know the whole Bible is concerned with truth in that sense. All of the Gospels deal with this truth. All of them, all of them, all of us and all of them are servants of the word. And just let's make a bit of application for this. As servants of the word, we are to be dealing in truth. This is, our, this is one of the things that we are commanded to be. We are servants of the word, servants of the one who claimed he was truth. We have the message of truth that we are told to take to the entire world. Now, this is interesting in our culture because you could say that truth is really the ultimate casualty of this relativistic age that we live in. This is an age where truth has been so downgraded that it is really not much different to what they really mean by truth is just whichever opinion seems to have the most support at the time. Majority opinion decides what truth is. That is how most people understand truth in this relativistic age. And unfortunately, when you have that understanding of truth, you can't actually discern what we mean when we're talking about objective truth, or as Luke would say, exact truth. And this is a, a real problem, because we are preaching a Messiah who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, more than that, he didn't just claim to be it, he actually put that as the foundation and function of his entire mission on this earth. Yes, he came to die for our sins, but when he's actually asked by Pilate in John 18, verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you are a king, and Jesus answered, you say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. That was it. That's why he came to this world, to do all those other things. But in doing all those other things, he was testifying to that one truth, ultimately, that he is the Messiah. He is the only way to the Father. He is the living God. You need him to be saved. That is the truth. And then he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And we do live in an age where I meet a lot of people who are seeking truth. They're seeing what is going on in the world and it's bothering them. Most people have this intuition in some ways that something is not quite right. Something they're being told is not quite matching up. It's not making sense. And we're just being told so heavily, accept it, accept it, accept it. It's actually having the opposite effect. And this is good for us. This is where, as servants of the truth, we need to stand up and be preaching the truth. Showing people the light, as John would call it there. And you see here, Pilate says to him, what is truth in that sort of sneering way that he has there what is truth you could imagine that scene playing out and obviously the irony of that whole situation what is truth well Luke tells us very clearly what is truth in fact he calls it what is the exact truth the exact truth is the life the teaching and the person of Jesus Christ that is the truth the exact truth that we have here and that really is going to be our focus as we unpack the rest of the gospels going through all that the truth did teach do say and what that means for us in this world today amen you've been listening to theology and apologetics this podcast is supported by your generous donations to help us continue to bring you great content please visit our patreon site at patreon.com theology and apologetics 
If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.